You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Skylight, the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Steph Karp. Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., and you can shop us online at skylightbooks.com. Today, I'm excited to welcome Kara Blue Adams to discuss her new work, You Never Get It Back, a collection of linked stories that won the John Simmons Short Fiction Award at the University of Iowa Press. Kara's stories have appeared in many magazines, including Granta, The Kenyon Review, Epoch, Alaska Quarterly Review, and American Short Fiction. She was awarded the Kenyon Review Short Fiction Prize, the Missouri Review Peden Prize, and the Maringoff Prize in Fiction, along with the Center for Fiction Emerging Writers Fellowship and support from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Sewanee Writers Conference, and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. Her essays, criticism, and interviews appeared in The Believer, Tin House, and Plowshares, and an essay about co-editing the Southern Review appears in The Little Magazine in Contemporary America by University of Chicago Press. She's an associate professor of creative writing at Seton Hall University and lives in Brooklyn. Carol, welcome and thanks for chatting with me today about this wonderful collection. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Did you want to start us off with a reading? I'd love to. Um, okay, so I'll read just a little bit from the title story of the collection, which is You Never Get It Back. Um, this is actually the second story in the book. The first story, um, is a fabulous story that sets up some of the themes and then the stories that follow all center on one young woman whose name is Kate Bishop and so this story is where we meet her for the first time. Um, it's also set around um, New Year's Eve um, and so it feels like a, a good story to read now in January. You never get it back. A party was being had and Kate agreed to go. The party would be held in Cambridge, a five-hour bus ride away from southern Vermont, where she was working part-time in a lab and living with her mother this first year out of college to save money and think about what kind of future she might want. It was a New Year's Eve party. With the arrival of a new millennium came a legitimate, historic-feeling reason to panic or celebrate, depending on one's inclination. The whole world was gearing up. Her old college roommate Esme called to invite her on December 30th, and because Kate was fighting with her boyfriend, with whom she had planned to spend New Year's Eve, she said yes, though not without hesitation. But Esme begged, she didn't want to go alone. She promised Kate that this party would be fun and cheap and attended by Harvard Law School students, including Esme's ex-boyfriend, Paul. Kate and Esme could crash at a studio in the densely populated Harvard-dominated neighborhood behind the law school if a better option failed to present itself. Both of us, won't it be awkward, Kate asked. And Esme assured Kate that she and Paul had a friendly relationship and that each regarded the other with platonic affection, but had moved on, going so far as to suggest perhaps, just maybe if this other thing wasn't working out, Kate might be interested in him. No, no, Kate said, never going to happen. But Esme persisted, saying that Kate would like Paul. 
He had grown up in a single parent household in a little town outside Albuquerque, lived in a trailer, was determined to rise from the lower middle class to the upper middle class. Some men in his position would want to be rich, Esme told her, but he's not greedy. He wants a nice life, that's all. Was Esme herself still interested in Paul? Kate couldn't tell. She made a non-committal noise. You're his type, Kate, Esme continued, smart brunette with a working class background. I was too blonde for him. He called me princess. He hated that I grew up in a bedroom with white carpet. Kate arrived at South Station from Vermont before Esme's Amtrak train came in from the posh town in rural Northern New Jersey, where she had grown up. Esme had spent the winter holidays there with her parents, a VP at a pharmaceutical agency and a real estate agent who were both now semi-retired. Esme considered them her best friends. In her mind, they led audacious iconoclastic lives. In the eighties, when my father was a lowly bench chemist, she would say, my mother out-earned him. They liked to drink and throw catered parties. Kate towed her luggage from the bus station through the chill wind of the concrete walled outdoor walkway to South Station's main building, which housed the train station. Waiting in the train station's warm, brightly lit food court, Kate ordered a, a pepperoni slice from Sibaro and ate the slice with a plastic knife and fork to make it last. An hour to spend here at least, but she had been the one to suggest she wait. Go along to Cambridge when you arrive, Esme had said. Paul will be happy to see you. Kate wished she had a cell phone. If the train was delayed, how would she know? She would have to ask the desk agent. The big clock by the Black Arrivals Board read 2.07 p.m. Esme's train was due in at 3.05. She read a back issue of Structure until 2.55 and went to the platform to stretch her legs. Outside, the sky was already darkening. A light snowfall drifted down from the flat gray vault, the wind picking up the dry flakes on the platform and eddying the, the snow in small twists like the peel of lemon in a cocktail. The pale light had a muffled quality as if strained through white gauze. Would the party be fun? She gave it a 50-50 chance. A small regret moved through her. She would prefer to be in New York with Michael, but he hadn't called and what could she have done gotten the ski resort's address from his mother and shown up unannounced? No, and anything was better than sitting home on New Year's Eve, worried and humiliated and preparing to break up with him unless he had a truly dazzling explanation for his behavior. Two trains arrived on parallel tracks. Passengers disembarked into the cold air, stamping their feet and chafing their hands. Rumi, as May's voice called from behind her, Esme liked to call her this, as if to reinforce the source of their unlikely bond. Their junior year at Williams, they'd roomed together, matched up by the housing office when Kate's freshman and sophomore year roommate transferred to Yale and Esme transferred in. Before going their separate ways senior year, Kate to a co-op and Esme to an off-campus apartment. They'd grown unexpectedly close. Kate listened to Esme's romantic worries and reassured her about her academic papers, which Esme gave to Kate to read, and after hearing her responses, relentlessly revised into perfection. Esme in turn took offense on Kate's behalf when she felt Kate had been slighted and insisted Kate stand up for herself when a professor failed her on an exam when she was in the infirmary with strep throat. 
She helped Kate with money too. She had bought Kate's second semester school books on her parents' credit card, knowing the book's expense was a hardship and insisting her parents didn't mind when Kate tried to refuse what seemed too large a gift. And now, unlikely a pair though they were, they stood greeting each other in South Station on the cusp of a new millennium. Perfect, thank you. So first, I'd just love to talk about the origins of this collection. How uh, long have you been working on these stories? And when did it start to kind of come together for you as a, as a collection, as a, as a book? Um, this is a question that I, I like to answer two different ways. Um, because I've been working on the stories that became a part of the book for a long time. Um, I would say more than 15 years probably were spent working on these stories. And before I published the collection, I had written and published around 20 stories individually in literary magazines. Um, and during that time, you know, I was asking myself, what would a collection, um, what would it look like? Um, and I imagined different forms that the book might take ultimately. Um, but it really wasn't until perhaps about five years ago that this collection um, came into focus for me. Um, I was so interested in the story form. I was, you know, trying out all different sorts of things in my stories. I wrote fabulous stories and realist stories. Mm -hmm. I wrote stories that were a paragraph long and stories that were 10 pages long and stories that were 30 pages long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I moved all over the country. My stories were set all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kept thinking, well, you know, maybe the book will be um, stories set in New England and then realized, well, I love some of the stories that are set in Arizona. I don't want to give those up. Um, Maybe this will be a collection of very brief stories. And then realized, I don't want to give up the 30 page stories. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I thought about a, you know, a kind of thematic center. Mm. Um, and I thought about a number of things, including the question of loss, which is one that I think echoes through the book. Um, finally, when I pulled together my stories, that you know, my favorites of the stories I'd written, um, I realized that I needed a clear through line. Um, beyond place, beyond form, beyond theme. Um, and that was when I started to think about this character, Kate Bishop, as being um, the, the thing that would really be the through line through the story. So that was maybe five years ago. And then, um, then I really had my work cut out for me um, in terms of revising some older stories yeah. that weren't completely about her to make them about her, and then writing some new stories to, to fill out um, her story, that kind of larger arc of the book. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was wondering if the stories had always been linked by a single character or not. So it's interesting to find out that that's sort of what brought them into focus kind of after the fact. Did you find that as you were revising the voice changed or um, that there had been kind of a singular voice in there that you were just sort of coming, coming to see or what was that experience like? It was a really interesting one. Um, it came about I think initially because I gave um, some of my favorite stories to a few friends who are writers to read, thinking mm -hmm. about making a collection out of them. And um, two of those writers said, you know, this is great. We like the variety. Um, you know, they had a few small suggestions, but nothing big. And then two of the other um, readers said, these are really interesting, but some of the characters are fairly similar to each other. Mm. You might try either making them a little bit more different from each other or bringing them closer together and, and mm. making them a single character. Um, and once they said that, I realized that some of the concerns and the voice in some of the stories um, really did sound like the same person. 
Yeah. Um, but it, the, one of the results was that I think ultimately Kate ended up being a, a more nuanced and complex person because I'd allowed myself to imagine these different, a few of these different moments in her life um, individually without mm -hmm. needing everything to make sense until, you know, I sat down and really did the work of her vision. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that struck me about, I mean, having read it, I would have never guessed, you know, that Kate hadn't always been the center of gravity in this story collection. So yeah, I think it's a huge accomplishment. And as I was reading it too, I think, you know, the experience of it is it's a love story in a way. Um, and, and yet her love story sort of seems on the periphery in many of the stories. And it's, um, I experienced a lot of the stories as like, she's sort of watching these other couples and trying to like read herself through them. Um, and, and the effect of that actually is, I mean, I learn a lot about her that way, you know, and so it's a, it's a really stunning effect. Um, I want to talk a little bit about those effects of a collected story, um, linked stories versus a novel. Um, each of these stories in the collection is, it's either focused on a day or a span of a few days. It's a really kind of like narrow slice of time. And yet there's a way in which each story opens up on a broader swath of Kate's life that as a whole makes the collection feel like it's really sweeping and epic and covers a lot of her life. Um, and it's under 200 pages. So if I imagined a novel, you know, accomplishing that in under 200 pages, it's hard to imagine, I guess. Um, and it got me thinking about kind of these differences of what you what you can do and, and um, how you experience time and other, other kind of mechanics in a short story collection versus a novel. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those distinctions between the two forms as you see them, or as you discovered as you were putting this together. Yeah, definitely. And I love that question. Um, I think the, the novel and stories or the linked collection is just such a fascinating form. And many of my favorite books, including Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout, mm -hmm. Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson, mm -hmm. um, Cities I've Never Lived In by Sarah Majka, mm -hmm. um, I could go on and on, are, are linked collections or novels and, and stories. Um, as a writer and a reader, I really value precision and compression. Mm -hmm. um, I love writers like Amy Hempel, who just carve away until you're just left with what's really essential. Um, but what they give you feels so expansive at the same time. Yeah. And Beattie is another writer who I think does that really well. Definitely, yeah. Um, and I love that about the short story form. It, it operates in a space that's um, you know almost as close to poetry sometimes as it is to the novel, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and I love that the linked collection can do exactly what you, you're describing. It, it can choose important moments in a character's life, important times, mm -hmm. um, and render them with such precision and compression, um, and then move on to the next important moment or time or perspective. It can move, of course, from character to character as well. And my collection does that in one case, moves into another character's mind. Um, Kate's mother's mind. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that I think it can do that this story collection can do that novels can't do perhaps quite as easily, um, you know, one thing is to get that compression, but also that scope. Um, and the other thing that they can do, I think, is they can give you this constellation of moments in a character's life. Um, or depending on the scope, right, it could also be a, a community's life or a family's life without needing them all to add up in one way, 
to make mm -hmm. sense in one way. So the narrative logic is a little bit different. In a novel, usually you have um, a causal relationship between all of the events that are presented. Um, but I think real life, for me at least, unfolds in a, in a way that feels a little bit different. I don't always know how one event in my life is going to lead to the next. And in retrospect, I can't always say how that happened. And, and the ways that things seem to connect change over time as I live longer, as my perspective changes. And so I love that the linked collection can create that kind of effect too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you found a lot of fertile ground kind of in these surprising unmoored places where she's between decisions, where it feels like in novels, we kind of expect decisions to lead to another thing and have this, yeah, like you said, a kind of cause and effect, um, a kind of cause and effect uh, momentum. And I was th it made me think about, I mean, Kate is a, is a graduate student in a lot of these stories. Um, and I remember I had a writing instructor once say, well, you never read stories or novels about college students, which is different than grad students. But you know, so basically your point was like, it's too boring. They have a lot of free time. There's no sort of like natural structure in their lives to grab onto, or there's no like, you know, work, their relationship to work and things like that's a little bit different. And um, it made me laugh when she said it, you know, like I was just, I sort of suspected it wasn't necessarily true, but it was funny. And I, you know, I think there's a, there's, um, I mean, you've, you've definitely proven the case wrong. I think um, the way that these stories uh, find Kate in these, in these places where she's um, a little unmoored um, there, I mean, you found really, really amazing, uh, fertile ground there to, to dredge up for her. And it's, um, it's a great effect. It's really cool. I'm so glad to hear that. And <laughs> yeah, I'm testing that idea out in my mind. I really love Elif Batman's novel, The Idiot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Anytime someone gives me a rule like that, I always immediately. <laughs> You're like, well, here's a counterexample. That's not yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but of course, that, that point makes a lot of sense. In college, the structure often of your time and of your life comes in a kind of external way that might not feel necessarily so dramatic on the page without yeah. some additional work to make it so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, okay, so this is a, to jump right into a, to a, a bigger, more thematic question. Um, I was wondering what, as a writer, I find I'm I'm asking myself these questions I can't answer, or I've got these obsessions and curiosities that drive kind of that like become the seeds of story. And I was wondering what some of your questions that you were trying to answer for yourself were when you were working on some of these stories, or what obsessions or ideas were you like, I can't get over this. I just need to gnaw on this bone. Um, can you think of any? Yeah, this is just a really fascinating question to me. I think the the seeds of stories for me maybe aren't obsessions or questions exactly. Um, there are tensions between people, um, or I mean, sometimes it's really just a kind of scene that comes into my mind and that I then want to follow. Um, but I do think the question of what it means to love another person and how we navigate the complexities mm -hmm. of that kind of relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship or a, a family relationship. I think that certainly is a, a kind of obsession. And you, you mentioned earlier, understanding the book as a love story in part. Mm -hmm. And I, I think for me, it's almost um, two love stories. And, and you know, 
Kate is both looking for a romantic partner um, and struggling with what her um, what her family background means in terms of finding a person with whom she can make a, a relationship that feels good to her. Mm -hmm. um, but she's also looking for the thing that she's passionate enough about in life to devote herself to something mm -hmm. that it feels worth spending her life on. Mm -hmm. First she tries science and, and then she thinks about how she's begun to answer questions that are so small that she can't really remember why she's asking them in the first place. And although of course she knows, she knows intellectually, she, she can <laughs> feel it. Yeah. Um, and then she decides she needs to, she needs to change her life, which, you know, especially coming from a, a um, working class background is not an easy proposition for her. Um, so I think those were kind of two obsessions that run throughout the, the book and throughout my work. Um, and then a third that I couldn't really see until pretty far into the project, I think does have to do with social class and money and what it means to move out of the social class into which you're born, what it means to experience poverty, to experience economic um, deprivation, um, and how that shapes you, in what way you can change social class and in what way you carry the social class into which you were born with you. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that was, um, lent itself to humor in a lot of, in a lot of ways, especially between her and Esme, but it also makes her homegoing, um, really fraught and the, and the, that feeling of, um, being out of place with her own family. It certainly because of this sort of class betrayal or, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, is really drives a lot of tension in these stories for sure. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that you felt that way. I do. I did feel like it was a productive source of tension. Um, and one fascinating thing I've been thinking about recently is that Kate's mother grows up in a more kind of middle class um, mm -hmm. environment and then kind of falls out of the middle class into mm -hmm. a bohemian back to the lander-ish <laughs> um, working class poverty. Um, and I'm throwing a bunch of terms out because none of them feel quite right. I sure. Yeah, around classes and super nuanced ways. Um, but Kate grows up in that environment instead of growing up in a more stable middle class environment. So in a way, even if she wasn't to change social class, she and her mother would still have you know, a different a difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it class is so much less um, permanent than the language we have for it. It can be so much more transitional and so much more dependent on what is coming before and after it. So, yeah. Absolutely. And it's about um, money, of course, but it's also about cultural capital mm -hmm. and knowledge and, you know, ways of understanding the world. So it's it's got all of these dimensions, even if you're looking at just one moment in time in one person's life. Totally. And there's a way in which someone like Kate, who has experienced, who has these different perspectives, can come across as more worldly than someone like Esme, who was kind of born into a um, a kind of comfort that is a little, makes her seem a little naive or a little... Um, uh, yeah, just less less experienced, you know. So I I love I love that when when characters can flip the power that way, and it yeah I like that a lot, seeing that. Yeah, I think um, 
I love when powers sort of pass back and forth in a story a little bit. I love mm -hmm. when it's shifting and unstable. I think that is just such a pleasure as a reader. Um, and, you know, I think humor often comes from a shift in perspective or two things being juxtaposed or a pattern being established and then broken. Um, and social class in the stories certainly, I think, um, allowed me to create a lot of humor that way. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the funniest moments for me, not related to class necessarily, but it's when Kate is recalling an undergrad English class where she had to listen to straight boys talk about um, Hills Like White Elephants, <laughs> which is where the title of this collection is taken from. Um, and, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, quotes and literary references and, and other writers alive in this collection. I was, um, including that beautiful epigraph by Marilyn Robinson, um, about loss and recalling things we've, we've lost, making them sort of giving them back to us again. Um, I was wondering, just given, given all that influence while you were working on this project, are there, um, things you were reading or, you know, things that books you felt like you were in conversation with? Yeah, because I wrote the book over such a long time span, um, I was reading just widely and very diversely. So mm -hmm. uh, you can tell in that first story, I think that I love Kafka and Borges and Calvino. <laughs> um, it's a fabulous story. Um, I also, you know, was certainly reading a lot of Elizabeth Stroud and Alice Munro um, and Dennis Johnson and Amy Hempel. So realist writers, some um, you know more minimalist than others, um, but writers um, who um, who explore character and, and the world through the lens that's realist in nature. Um, for a while, I was reading actually Donald Antrim, who does both. Hmm. Um, he he wrote a few wild experimental novels influenced by Donald Barthelmay um, that came out in the maybe the late '90s, early thousands. And then he wrote one of my favorite memoirs, which is actually a memoir in essays, um, mm. The Afterlife. Beautiful memoir about his mother, who was kind of a free spirit, unusual person, and who had a drinking problem. Um, and it's about his life as a writer and artist in New York, his relationship with his family um, in Florida and the South, um, and specifically his mother. Um, and those essays just just really approach the characters with such tenderness and humor, but also a rigorousness. No one has ever let off the hook. The essays never become sentimental. There's just so much nuance and intelligence, I think, in the way that he treats all of the characters, himself, his mother, everyone. Mm. Um, and then he has a collection of stories I really love, The Emerald Light in the Air, which are um, more, more realist, although some are a little, a little strange in some ways. Um, but those stories have a kind of breathtaking sophistication, I think. Um, and so I studied a number of those closely as I was working on um, the, the book in its final form. Mm -hmm. Did, do you think you um, would be surprised to, if you were to tell an earlier version of yourself that your um, debut story collection would be grounded in realism? <laughs> do you think it would shock you? <laughs> That's interesting. I don't think so because I began writing realist stories when I was mm -hmm. first writing. Okay. Um, and then I got excited about the fabulous stories a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was always going back and forth and still sometimes a fabulous story will arrive. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they're harder for me to, um, to begin unless they 
it really just feels like they sort of a light on my shoulder and then I need to follow them. But mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, I wrote one and I thought, oh, I kind of thought I was done with that, but yeah. no, it's, it's back. Exciting. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> um, so you're also a professor of creative writing. And I wanted to ask if there's a relationship between your teaching life and your writing life. Yes, um, there certainly is. Um, so I've had several careers. Um, I actually worked at a law firm in immigration law after college, thinking I might go to law school. Um, and um, I loved that because my work was very separate from my writing and that felt really helpful in a lot of ways. Um, then I went to grad school and studied creative writing. And then I actually was an editor for five years at the Southern Review. Um, and that was sort of the opposite experience. Every day I was immersed in reading um, primarily short stories, but also essays and poems and, and editing them for the magazine. And um, I learned so much that way um, about what a story could be and do and um, what I wanted my stories to be and do. And when I became a, an assistant professor, my relationship again shifted um, the relationship between my career and, and my writing. Um, but I found that just as editing had taught me a lot about fiction, um, teaching taught me about fiction as well, both because I was spending time reading the stories that I wanted to teach to my students and mm. the books and the other, um, you know, the poems and essays. Um, and I learned so much that way because I think teaching something to someone else really requires you to understand it intimately. Um, and returning to something again and again um, really is sort of a, a revelation, I think, um, or it can be. Um, and then, of course, I was reading my students' work, which um, was just wild and exciting to watch them um, bring into focus what it is that they felt was most urgent, what they wanted to say, the thing that only they could bring into the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's just, it's a real privilege and um, it's something that I, I love to do. Wonderful. Well, to close us out, I have one last question and it's, what have you been reading lately? Is there anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Um, yes, so many things. <laughs> um, I read and loved Patricia Lockwood's debut novel. Oh, me too. <laughs> In a big way. <laughs> so, so good. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's a novel that operates through compression yes. and juxtaposition, which I love. Um, and um, it's so funny. And it also breaks your heart, which to me is just one of the best kinds of books, one of the highest standard, highest yeah. standard before. Yeah. I like your book. It has a happy ending, which you don't see coming. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, and in both cases felt really grateful for that. Um, in this time where it feels like it I mean, not, not saccharine or not sort of in that, um, that unearned, but expected way in which we consume a lot of things like, you know, I don't know, TV, some, but whatever. Um, but, 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 um, yeah, that, that earned hope, um, was really a joy and I can see, I can see, um, I can see a resonance between the two. Like, it doesn't surprise me that you say you liked this, the liked Patricia Lockwood's, um, no one is talking about this because I think they have some spirit in common. 
Oh, that makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> it's fantastic. Well, think, yeah, any, any others to add? Oh, yeah, one other to add, just because people um, may not have encountered it, um, but a really great um, novel and stories by Maria Gainza, who's an Argentine writer. Hmm. Uh, she's an art critic, um, as well as a fiction writer. And the stories are about a woman who is also an art critic. And sometimes they feel a bit essayistic in a great way um, that, you know, sometimes people say that and it's sort of a backhanded compliment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you wonder, huh, will it be a little slow or too dense? Um, it's the opposite. She brings in all of this rich knowledge and the stories move in really unexpected ways. Um, and then there's a, you know, there's one character who's the through line and the stories really build to something that's bigger than the um, some of their parts. So she's just a fascinating, intellectual, um, beautiful, unexpected writer. I'd recommend everyone check out. So Optic Nerve by Maria Gainza. Fantastic. Thanks for those recommendations. And thank you for being with us today. We really appreciate you sharing your work with us today on the podcast. Um, it was a real pleasure. And I appreciate your thoughtfulness and, and your answers to our questions. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk with you. Once again, today's guest was Kara Blue Adams discussing You Never Get It Back. You can order your copy at skylightbooks.com. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.